This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. And what a week it has been, folks. If you're Matt Gates, you may want to think about what dirt you have on Donald Trump to trade up to the Justice Department in exchange for leniency on what will be a long sentence. The Daily Beast has come out with yet another bombshell report about Gates' role in an alleged sex ring operated by his MAGA party pal, Joel Greenberg. The Beast obtained several documents showing that Greenberg made more than 150 Venmo payments to dozens of young women who would show up for a decadent house parties in the gated communities of Orlando and inside luxury hotel rooms. According to receipts reviewed by CNN, Gates and his associate Joel Greenberg used digital payment apps to send hundreds of dollars to at least one woman who attended these parties. Now, these receipts viewed by CNN record payments that took place between 2018 and 2019 and include at least one that indicated in its label that it was to compensate for travel. CNN describes an atmosphere straight out of the Stanley Kubrick film Eyes Wide Shut with powerful political figures dressed in formal wear, ingesting cocaine and ecstasy before pairing off with a woman brought to the party by Greenberg and paid for their sexual service via Venmo. Assume the position. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? Gates was allegedly an enthusiastic participant at these gatherings, and according to one party goer, like to discuss politics and behave like a frat type of party boy. Women we spoke with said when some of the women arrived, there were rules. For example, the first thing some of them were asked to do was put away their cell phones. Now, one of the women told us the attendees included a who's who of local Republican officials and often included Congressman Gates. And these men just did not want their activities at these parties being documented. Now, we're told people at these parties were often dressed up, coming directly from a political event, and we're told folks mingled and shared drugs, including cocaine and ecstasy. Politico was reporting that Gates' cell phone was seized by federal agents this winter when federal agents executed a search warrant at his home. This could prove to provide a motherload of evidence for investigators as Gates loved to show off pictures of his sexual conquests on the floor of Congress. Not to mention that he allegedly paid for those conquests, again, with Venmo. It's no small matter for the Justice Department to seize the phone of an elected member of a co-equal branch of government. Politico now reporting that's what they've done. Now comes news that Greenberg has become a cooperating witness for the Justice Department against Gates. Speculation about Greenberg's cooperation began mounting last week after his lawyer and a federal prosecutor both said in court that he was likely to plead guilty in the coming weeks. I'm sure Matt Gates is not feeling very comfortable today, Fritz Scheller, Greenberg's lawyer, told reporters afterward. The New York Times just now reporting that one of Gates' closest associates has been cooperating since last year with the Justice Department and has given the department information about Congressman Gates. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Middle District of Florida is leading the investigation, which is examining not only whether Greenberg, Gates, and others broke sex trafficking laws, but also whether Gates paid for women over the age of 18 to travel with him to places like the Bahamas. If you want something done, hire a woman. 
In the widening investigation, Gates is now linked to charges of running a ghost candidate to fix a Florida House race for his close pal, Jason Broder, who was running for an open seat. A witness did tell investigators that they heard a conversation between Matt Gates and a lobbyist in Florida named Chris Dorworth. Chris Dorworth is very well known in the state. He's a Trump administration allied lobbyist, and he's risen to prominence over the last four years. Two men talked about basically running a sham candidate in a state Senate election in Florida last year. The candidate would exist basically to siphon votes off of the Democratic candidate handing the election to the Republican. Though recruiting a third-party candidate to run for office and funnel votes from another candidate is generally legal, the practice of secretly paying so-called ghost candidates who are paid to run on a third-party ticket is typically considered a violation of campaign finance laws. A ghost candidate scheme would be brazen even in Florida, which has been fertile ground for that unseemingly political ploys for years. But nothing may top the slate of sham candidates that popped up all over Florida during the 2020 election in an effort to siphon votes away from Democratic candidates. In at least three different Florida Senate races last year, candidates appeared on the ballot who nobody knew in politics, who didn't do any campaigning. There were people who didn't appear to have any interest or involvement in the race or in politics more broadly whatsoever. But mysteriously, hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent on their behalf on really slick mailers that went out to Florida voters promoting these no-name candidates as strong, electable progressives. That Gates would think he was so untouchable and above the law that he could fix Florida political races to his satisfaction highlights the sense of entitlement and sense of untouchability he believed himself to possess. But now with his back against the wall and new information coming out daily, Gates has about 10 minutes of political life left before he puts on the orange jumpsuit. That won't prevent me from enjoying every freaking minute of the circus, though. And this one only promises to get better and better. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. I'm a fool to do your dirty work, oh yeah. Light the candle, put the lock upon the door. You have sent the maid home early, like a thousand times before. And now for the main event. All this reporting on Republican political sleaze has me in need of a morality car wash to rid myself of the stink of Matt Gates and the rest of these MAGA pigs. So, let's pivot away from Florida to focus on my next guest, a political activist who is actually trying to drain the swamp for real, Mr. Lawrence Lessig. As the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law at Harvard Law School... Lessig is the founder of Root Strikers, an activist network opposed to corruption in government. Lessig has authored numerous books, including Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Our Congress, and A Plan to Stop It, and One Way Forward, The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic. Lessig most recently created Equal Citizens, which describes itself as having one simple but incredibly important mission— to fix democracy by establishing truly equal citizenship. 
from the electoral college to gerrymandering, money in politics and voter suppression, our representatives' democracy has become so corrupted by this fundamental inequality, the only voices that our government listens to are the special interests who fund their campaigns and the most partisan groups and individuals. The result is the governmental dysfunction we see today. So listen up, folks. Lessig has the cure for much of what is ailing modern politics, and he is some strong medicine for us today. So let's listen now to that conversation. Larry, question for you here. As the founder of Equal Citizens, one of your mandates this year was the passage of the H.R. 1 type legislation. Now, that it, now that it passed Congress, how can we get it to stick, considering that Republican senators have vowed to block its passage using the filibuster and other means. And for those people that are listening, just so you know that the H.R. 1 is for the People Act. And I'm going to ask Larry for you first to explain the H.R. 1 legislation and then obviously give me give me the answer. How do we stop? How do we stop Republican senators from blocking the passage? Yeah. So this is the most important democracy reform package that's passed the House of Representatives since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what it does, there are three core things that it does. The first thing it does is it reverses the efforts in the states to suppress the votes of Democrats. That's basically what it's about. People view it through the lens of race, and I get why, because I think often it is about race. But it's really Republican legislatures imposing rules that make it harder for Democrats to vote. So they can't win at the polls they're going to win by making it harder for their opponents to actually get the votes out. So number one is to reverse these efforts to suppress the votes. Number two is to ban partisan gerrymandering, which, of course, is an extraordinary opportunity after the 2020 census and will have new districts to be drawn. And the Republicans, according to The New York Times, could just by redrawing districts with gerrymandered districts take the House. And number three, I think the most important thing it does is it changes the way members of Congress raise money to fund their campaigns. I mean, right now, members of Congress spend 30 to 70% of their time dialing for dollars, calling up the tiniest slice of the 1% to raise the money they need to fund their campaigns. That makes them obviously dependent on this tiny, tiny few. This system would allow candidates to raise money in small dollar increments that get matched six to one. So you can raise small dollar funds and compete effectively to run for Congress so you're not dependent on these, on, these, on these very few. These three changes together, a bunch of other things, a whole bunch of Donald Trump-inspired reforms in it as well. I mean, there's a, it's an extraordinary package of reforms, but these three changes are critical. And if they get passed, you know, it's kind of astonishing. We right now have a precariously majoritarian system. Like it's supposed to be a majoritarian. That's what a democracy is. The majority is supposed to win. It's precariously majoritarian in the sense that it's not implausible that you get fewer votes if you're in the Republican Party and you actually control Congress. That's happened before it could happen again. But given the changes the states are trying to implement right now after the 2020 election, more than 250 bills in the states, and given gerrymandering, if we don't pass HR1, we'll go from a precariously majoritarian system to a predictably minoritarian system in the sense that 
Republicans don't have to get the most votes in order to actually control Congress. Or, you know, as we've seen with Donald Trump and with George Bush, don't have to get the most votes to actually be elected president. And so I think it's a critical, critical moment. But you, Michael, have put your thumb on exactly what the risk is. The Senate has to pass it. According to the rules uh, of filibuster, given the way Republicans have deployed the filibuster, that means they need 60 votes. So we need a super majority <laughs> to protect the right of the majority to actually govern in a democracy. That's just crazy talk, but that's where we are right now, given the system as it's evolved. So then let's break it down for a second, just so that all the listeners fully understand. First, explain the concept of the filibuster. Well, originally, you know, there was uh, no filibuster in the Constitution. And the original rules of the Senate didn't have a filibuster. The ordinary rules allowed that a majority could say that's the end of debate. And then the rules were updated and they forgot to they forgot to include the right for the majority to end the debate. And that began this tradition that basically said, Senators, so long as you have something to say, you have the right to say it. And that enabled the Senate to be thought of as a very deliberative body. Okay, so there are very important moments in our past. Most of them are not pretty stories, but very important moments when senators have exercised this power to stand on the floor of the Senate and to debate and debate and debate or to talk and talk and talk to slow down legislation they thought should slow down. The most important examples have been civil rights legislation. So between 1875 and 1957, Congress could not pass any civil rights bills, including bills banning lynching, because whenever a bill like that came up, Southern Democrats would filibuster. And when they filibuster, they basically stopped the Senate from being able to do anything. Um, and so therefore, none of these bills ever moved through. But the thing about that filibuster is you actually had to earn it. You actually had to show up and stand there for 24 hours, you know, as Strom Thurmond did, and, and speak. And so, you know, there was a constraint on it. The way the rules have evolved, you don't have to stand up and say anything. All you have to do is to signal you would filibuster. And Congress now and the Senate will now say, well, if somebody is signaled they will filibuster, we're going to treat it as if there is a filibuster. And the only way to move forward and to actually have a vote on the bill is to get 60 members of the Senate to vote in favor of ending debate. So they don't even have to debate anymore. They don't have to have anything to do with deliberation. It has nothing to do with facilitating understanding or slowing it. It's just giving a minority a power to veto the will of the majority. And if you add up the numbers, you know, 100 senators, two for, per state. If, and so that means you need 61 votes. You need 60 votes to stop a debate, which means if you've got if you've got 41 votes, you can continue a debate. If you take the smallest 41 votes, that represents 12 percent of the American public. What I'm saying is if you take 41 votes and you say, let's go from the smallest state, Wyoming, up and just line up 41 votes, going from the smallest up till you get to 41 votes, that's 12% of the American public. So that means that we've got a system where 12% of the American public could block the ability of the rest of us to get the legislation that we want passed. And, and that system is just crazy in a democracy, but that's what we have. And then let's now talk about for a moment about gerrymandering, right? I mean, this to me is something that has always confused me and at the same time angered me. 
I don't understand why each and every you know term or every four years somebody needs to redesign the district in terms of who's voting in what district, when, where, how. It's bullshit when they talk about it's predicated on the Census Bureau and so on. I believe it's actually to change the what to change it, whether it's blue to red, red to blue, and so on. I just don't understand why they are constantly, constantly remapping out districts and states as it as it you know pertains to voting. I just don't get yeah. it. Well well you do get it, Michael. I mean, because you understand. Okay, actually, how. you got me there, Larry. I do get it, but I want you to explain <laughs> yeah. it to my listeners. Right. It's <laughs> don't about forget, power. you're right. You're right. I work for I work for the biggest scumbag in the planet. Right. I totally get it. You know, I mean, you know, democracy is supposed to be about the people picking their representatives. Gerrymandering is so the representatives get to pick their people, right? So the gerrymanders. They're they're members who basically say, we want to draw the district so that we have an absolutely safe shot at holding this seat. Okay, so, you know, there's probably 85 or 90 percent of the districts in Congress are safe seat districts, which means that no matter who runs, you know exactly which party is going to win uh, because it's been drawn to actually guarantee a Democrat or guarantee a Republican. And so these safe seat districts get crafted so that the politicians don't have any competition. I mean, you know, surprise, surprise. The incumbents make it so there is no easy competition against them. I mean, everybody would do it if they could, but we allow it in our system because the Supreme Court has said it's too political for us. We're not going to have anything to do to stop this. So they protect themselves from competition. But here's the perverse thing that does. You know, if you're a safe seat Democrat, and in a district where, you know, there's no chance a Republican's going to win. It's not that you're actually af- uh, not afraid of getting beaten. You're not afraid of getting beaten by any Republican, but you're terrified about getting beaten by an even more progressive Democrat. Or if you're in a safe seat Republican district, you're not afraid of a Democrat beating you, but you are afraid of a Trumpy beating you or somebody even further to the right of you beating you. And so what these what this means is if you're in these safe seat districts, you're obsessed with your right or left flank. You're constantly focused on making sure those people are not going to challenge you. Uh, and the best evidence of that is the insurrection on January 6th. I mean, when you look at the 140 members of Congress who without any legal basis at all, literally, no, there's no argument about this from a legal perspective. They had no legal basis at all to object to the counting of the votes. Yet they voted to object to the counting of the votes. Why? Not because they believed that there was any problem in that election, not because they believed that there was fraud that undermined. They were terrified of Trump coming in and running people against them in the primary. So they're captured by the extreme. That's what gerrymandering does. The only person you're worried about is the person even more extreme than you, which means we've got a Congress where the people where both sides are obsessed about the extremes as opposed to focusing on what ordinary people want, which is, of course, what we want a government, a representative government to do. I understood. Well, Larry, one of the more controversial measures in the H.R. 1, at least for some, is that it will make it harder for spoiler and vanity candidates to run for president. Now, this has the Green Party up in arms. But considering that if it weren't for Jill Stein in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have won the election. This, I mean, personally, this seems like a good idea to me. 
Explain to my listeners what the issue is here and why it's so important. Also, don't these green advocates see that spoiling elections for Democratic candidates in this area of the extremist GOP is inherently dangerous? I mean, I just it seems to me to be so blatantly obvious, and I'm just not sure I understand why they do it or why they want to do it. Well, you know, um, it's a great question. The Green Party in America is not really a party in the sense that it's trying to elect members to Congress and to affect government all the way down. The Green Party in America has become a party that runs candidates for president and raises Green Party issues in that debate for president. Now, in principle, I don't have anything against that, unless it does exactly what you're describing, makes it harder for the majority to select the candidate that they want to be president. Maybe in 2016, that's what happened. You know, many people look at 2020 and they look at the effect of the libertarian candidates in those four states where libertarian candidate got uh, a significant number of votes. You know, the margin between Trump and Biden was less than the number of votes given to the green and the libertarian candidates. And they think the candidate could have flipped it for Biden, like you could have seen Donald Trump actually win, uh, but for those candidates. Um, So people on the left and the right ought to be concerned about these third party candidates. But what the Green Party is worried about is they are the only people who try to fund their campaigns with public funding of presidential campaigns. We used to have a system since between Nixon and Obama, every candidate for president ran and was elected using presidential public funding. But Obama gave it up because the system hadn't kept up with inflation. So it just didn't make sense anymore. But the Green Party still uses it. And what the public funding system does for the Green Party candidates is that so long as they keep, you know, a certain number of votes, they can get their contributions matched by the government. So it basically subsidizes their ability to run a presidential campaign. Um, And what H.R. 1 does is it makes the demands on third party candidates a little bit more stringent. So uh, what you instead of having to get the support of 5000 people in 20 states, you have to get 25000 people in 20 states. Okay, now you might think that sounds like a lot, but a congressional candidate who wants to get public funding you know, matching funds that I described before in a congressional race has to get 50,000 people to support him or her before they can get matching funds. So it's actually harder to get matching funds for a congressional candidate than for a presidential candidate. But the Greens are worried it'll make it too hard for them to be able to get presidential public funding. And so therefore, they won't be able to run their candidates. Now, I think, you know, somebody like Ralph Nader or even Jill Stein would certainly be able to qualify under even this more stringent system. So I don't really see why it's a burden for them. I mean, it might be that somebody like Howie, who ran this time, Howie Hawkins, like, wouldn't have qualified. I don't know. But I don't see why we should be bending over backwards to make it easier for people to enter a race when we know the consequence is exactly what you described. Makes it more likely we'll have a spoiler who throws the election not in the way that the public wants. Right. I don't believe that it's um, a lot either, especially not with the Internet today. I mean, the Internet makes it so easy. I think I have 25,000 people here in New York that want me to run for mayor or for governor. I mean, if I need 50,000, I'd put out a tweet and say, hey, sign up onto this petition. Go to petition.michael.net. 
governor, got mayor, whatever it yeah. might be. And Lord, and if I get my 50,000, boom, I'm in for public funding. With the internet today, it's not the same as having to go door to door, grassroots um, politicking anymore. Everything now is done through the internet. As far as I'm concerned, you know, maybe you ask Amazon to deliver, you know, packages that turn around and say, sign this, and that automatically gives you the, the signature. I don't know. It's just, I think today with, technology and the internet should be much it's easier just so, it's so much easier and everything yeah. has changed as a result of it but you know we were speaking of the filibuster and speaking of it because of the narrow democratic majority in the senate how do we then pass any meaningful progressive or transformative legislation like infrastructure voting rights or gun control it almost seems to me as if though you can't yeah well you can't unless it's a budget bill so there's one big, there are two big exceptions to the filibuster rule. One is judges, and the other is budget reconciliation bills. So the Democrats won a very significant victory when the parliamentarian ruled that they would get two more budget reconciliation bills. So they'll have three bites at the apple in this cycle, where they'll be able to get things like infrastructure through with just 51 votes. Um, but you can't get voting rights through with 51 votes, because that doesn't affect the budget. It's not spending. And you're not going to be able to get any you know, background check legislation through with 51 votes, because it doesn't affect the budget. So, so there's these narrow exceptions for judges, which, of course, Mitch McConnell exploited <laughs> incredibly during the administration of Donald Trump to pack the court with a whole bunch of radically underqualified people. They just happen to be um, significant, su- sufficiently pro-Donald Trump. Um, and, uh, and, and so you can get judges that can, uh, can get through with just 51 votes, and you can get budgets through. But many of these transformative acts, like H.R. 1, if we have to go through the filibuster, it's clear there's not going to be 10 Republican senators who will join the Democrats. Yeah, I, it's, I, I, I don't see, other than how you described it, I, take gun control. I mean, every single time we see one of these massacres, we see something crazy as it relates to. And I'm a guy who carried firearms. I was licensed in the state of New York before my conviction to carry a concealed weapon, one of a thousand people. The background check that they put me through, the necessity documentation that they put me through was enormous. But you know what? I didn't sweat the process. I knew that the process made sense because I was asking for something that only a thousand other people in the city of New York have. And the right to carry a firearm, the right to own a firearm because of its deadly nature is so significant. How could you not want to know who is carrying, who is purchasing? To me, I don't understand it and I'll never understand it. And I don't understand the NRA. And this bullshit about them, well, if you force them to do this, then you could stop them from doing that. I don't have the crystal ball. I really don't. And I don't understand their usage of the Second Amendment. I just don't understand it. And I try to, especially being somebody that would like my firearms license back. Well, well, you know, Michael, again, I think that you know this, right? It's about the money. When the NRA was not tied to the gun industry... The NRA actually supported reasonable regulations to make sure that guns were safe and that people using guns were safe. But when the gun industry captured the NRA and they realized that they could use this crazy extreme view of a totally unregulated, deadly weapon 
as a political motivator, um, they realized this was printing money for the gun industry. This was a, you know, the amount of money they spend on buying politicians is tiny compared to the amount of money they make because this is an essentially unregulated industry that allows all sorts of crazy people to go out and buy machine guns and the like. So yeah, we will always see this. In my view, we will always see this craziness until we have a Congress can actually do something based on what makes sense. And they're not going to do something about guns until the gun industry is no longer able to spend millions through the NRA to take out people who stand up for sensible gun regulation. So it's the same problem. It's just a new manifestation. And we see it literally every week. We're seeing another uh, slaughter. It's like the, you know, you can, it's the inverse of the pandemic. The pandemic goes away and then what comes back are the gun killings. Um, and, you know, obviously they're both terrible. Right. And then, of course, you start seeing everybody, my hearts, my prayer, you know, my condolences. I don't want to see those anymore. I still to this day do not understand the necessity for a citizen to own an AR-16. To me, it doesn't yeah. make now I've shot an AR-16. I don't understand why anybody would want to have it. I really I truly don't. It is a military weapon that is used in combat. You should not be allowed as a civilian, as far as I'm concerned, to own it. The same reason you don't need a land-to-air missile or a hand grenade. I just don't see the necessity for it, and I don't understand it. Hey, everybody. My eyesight is pretty rough these days. Some of it's simply because I'm getting older. But there's also the fact that I spend decades reading legal documents with tiny print. And then there's the hours I spent um, inside prison reading in very low light. And nothing destroys your eyes faster than squinting at a paperback for six hours in a darkened cell. And now with my podcast, my new book, and even more documents to read, I get headaches, eye strain, and crazy migraines like you wouldn't believe. Recently, though, a friend introduced me to Blue Blocks. After trying several pairs, I settled on their summer glow blue light glasses. There's no magic. I simply put them on during the day when working with screens or under artificial light. I tried just about everything before I got a pair of these bad boys, including a couple of expensive prescription frames that seemed to just make matters worse. Blue Blocks just work better. Here's some of the finer points about Blue Blocks. They're made in optics laboratories in Australia, not mass-produced in factories in Asia. The frames are super stylish that and have been featured in Vogue. They're constructed with science-backed technology, tested to ensure they work, unlike other blue-like glass companies. They're a little more expensive than other brands, but they're worth every penny just to have gotten rid of those migraines. Besides, you get what you pay for. After getting my Summer Glow blue light glasses from Blue Blocks, I felt immediate relief, not just from digital eye strain, but my migraines and my headaches lessened as well. Plus, the cool yellow lenses make me look, well, like a rock star. Glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. Blue Blocks has glasses for every need. Blue light for helping digital eye strain. Summer Glow for helping with low mood and migraines. And Sleep Plus for improving your sleep. Blue Blocks also has other amazing products, such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, and 100% blackout sleep masks, all backed by science. Blue Blocks ship worldwide in rapid time. Easy returns and exchanges. 
So go to blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15% on your order. That's blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15%. But I want to ask you, Larry, what measures do you believe the Biden administration should take to fight the repressive and the racist voter bills that have passed in Georgia and in other red states? Do you see a scenario where the Justice Department should finally get involved, similar to the Jim Crow era? Well, you know, the problem with that is that the Supreme Court has made it really difficult to prove racial motivation in these uh, in these voting rights acts. The Shelby County case, which was, um, you know, Chief Justice Roberts was so proud of because he thought it showed that America had made progress from the racist 1960s and that we didn't have to worry about Southern states suppressing the vote of African-Americans anymore. So they struck down the Voting Rights Act, critical parts of the Voting Rights Act. And almost overnight, you saw scores of these states adopting rules that basically suppress the vote. But the Supreme Court has raised the bar. It's really tough to satisfy the standard of the Supreme Court. Now, H.R. 1 actually is a nice um, uh, evasion of that restriction, because what H.R. 1 does is it, it doesn't try to justify its regulations on the basis of racist Southern legislation. It doesn't say the South, these, these states are racist, therefore we're allowed to do this. It uses a completely different part of the Constitution. Expressly in the Constitution, Congress is given the power to set the rules for elections as, as far as they affect Congress. Not because they think anybody's been a racist, but just because they think we ought not have a system where it's harder for Democrats to vote than for Republicans, or that we make sure that people who don't work can vote, but you know because you stop the voting at five o'clock so that if you work till five o'clock, you don't have time to vote. You know All these obvious common sense rules to make it so all of us have an equal freedom to vote. Congress can impose those without calling anybody a racist. And I think the best thing Joe Biden can do is to make this law pass the Senate. And he does that by just saying, this is it. We have got to make this pass. And, and unfortunately, you know, just in the last day, we've seen Joe Manchin, who, you know, on many of these issues is really good. He's really good about money and politics. He totally gets the corruption of Congress. And he has no reason why he supports gerrymandering either. But he has said he's not going to he's not going to compromise on the uh, filibuster. And the reality is, unless we get Joe Manchin on this side, then we're not going to be able to get any of these laws passed. Right. See, I don't understand why Joe Manchin is doing it. And the argument that he is bringing forth is the fact that if we do this now and ultimately one day down the road, there'll be a Republican in the White House that could be a Republican controlled House as well as Senate that they'll just switch it back and then, you know, it will give them the ability to do to the Democrats what they he believes that the Democrats are looking to do to the Republicans in order to, you know, be able to pass legislation, especially meaningful legislation and not have to have, you know, that supermajority just to do it with a majority, which is basically the way I always learned the system worked. Uh, why he's doing that, I kind of understand his thought process. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. But if the Republicans today, if God forbid a million times Donald Trump had won re-election 
And somehow or another, right, they Democrats lost the House and Republicans had kept the Senate, right? Could you imagine what would be done right now? First of all, you'd have the gerrymandering going all over the place to the point that there's no way in the world that a Democrat could ever win, you know, these larger counties. Then on top of that, Donald Trump didn't even care about filibuster rules. He didn't care about majority. He did everything by executive order anyway. And the only thing that he actually had bipartisan agreement on was the first step back prison reform, which he shitted up completely, considering they haven't done a damn thing since December of 2018, other than have Donald Trump stand up with a piece of paper and say, I'm doing more for for prison reform than anyone since (laughs) Abraham Lincoln. No, no, you idiot. You have not. And you haven't done a damn thing. And that's just what it would be. So I understand, again, Joe Manchin's ideology behind it. I just don't agree with the way that it's going. Now, I mean, we do. And you brought up something about how, you know, um, we maybe shouldn't call it racist in terms of the, you know, the voting rights uh, and so on. And my feeling is you have to call it racist. You have to call it what it is. You know the expression, right? If it wags its tail, if it barks like a dog, it's a dog. It is exactly what it is. They are gerrymandering these areas simply because it's racist. It's racist. They're trying to disenfranchise minority minorities from being able to vote. They're trying to See, stop I, the process. And it is what it is. And we have to stop pretending that it's not what it is, because then we're not going to advance. You know, yes, we have made advances since, since the Jim Crow era, but we're going backwards now. And that's yeah, what I would but, hope Jim Manchin, uh, Joe Manchin, would actually, you know, would actually take a look at. Uh, he okay, so you've made two, you made two really great points. Let me, let, let me talk about them separately. Except the first for the fact I called Joe Manchin Jim. I don't know yeah, why, well, that's but okay. I did. <laughs> so, so, you know, Joe Manchin's worried about what happens if the other way around. Let's just agree on a simple principle. If you represent the majority, you ought to be able to get your ideas through Congress, right? That, why, why isn't that a principle? Why, why don't we say that if you actually win the control of Congress, you have a majority support, the president, Congress, the House, and the Senate, then you get to pass legislation. Right now, we don't have that because we have a minority who has the ability to block changes. Now, if the Republicans took over, I get it. The Democrats could say, oh, my gosh, they could they could like abuse their power. And if they're abusing their power in the name of a minority, I'm with anybody who wants to oppose that. But when you're exercising power in the name of the majority, I think you ought to be allowed to do that. We ought to have a system to prevent it. But number two about, you know, whether we want to call it racist or not. Look, I don't disagree with you about what it is, but I am so desperate to get reform passed that I want to ask, what's the best way to talk about it to get it passed? Now, we can rally our base, no doubt, by saying the other side is a bunch of racists. And, you know, I'm with you. They and probably Jim McConnell, are. And, and um, Mitch McConnell Mitch, is. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the point is, if you have to defend this as an anti-racist law, the Supreme Court has said you're going to have to pass strict scrutiny, which means the hurdle is extremely high. But if you have to defend this simply by saying, look, we're exercising our power as Congress to make sure congressional elections are fair, there is no extremely difficult burden for you to uphold in the Supreme Court. So if you talk about it as partisan, like we're just trying to avoid a partisan system, 
where the party in control exercises their power to make it harder for the outsiders to compete with them. I mean, you know, you don't have to call the other side racist and it's easier to get it through the Supreme Court. So I'm only talking about what works here. Well, you don't have to call them, Larry, you don't have to call them racist if they'd stop, if they would stop acting (laughs) like a bunch of racists. All right. I believe that everyone's entitled to their vote. It's just what I believe. Right. The Constitution happens to believe the same thing with me. However, that's what I believe. And I don't believe that one should be able to sit down with a map and figure out how am I going to play with the lines so that I prevent an entire group of individuals that live over here from being able to affect the outcome of who they want to be their representative. I just don't buy it. I don't either. And I want to figure out a way to stop it. And the only way we stop it in the short term is H.R. 1. So we got to figure out how to get the president to make sure that this passes, which means Joe or Jim or Fred Manchin have got to actually step up (laughs) and do the right thing for democracy here. And the question is, what are we going to do to get them to do that? Yeah, I I agree with you. Look, Larry, I am avowedly pro-Biden. And I believe that he's done a superb job to date with just about everything from vaccine distribution. It is amazing because Trump really left him with a bag of shit. I mean, he just walked out of there getting himself vaccinated and he left four years worth of problems, four years worth of lies. You know, it's easy to turn around and say, nope, we're not doing that. Take it, rip it apart, break it with no plan whatsoever to rebuild it or to fix it. Everything was nope. That's not, I don't like it. We're going, we're going to throw the kids in cages. We'll fix immigration, but you have no plan to do so. But, you know, I mean, everything from vaccine distribution to the passage of the COVID relief bill. Now, that said, I do worry that there's a tendency right now in the press to paint everything that Biden does with superlatives, because it seems that we are teetering so far to the brink and that Trump had come so close to basically breaking our democratic system that the press is rightfully overcompensating in now in the other direction as a Biden cheerleader. Now, I think the truest sense that we have returned to normality is when the press begins publishing pieces that are critical of the Biden administration without worrying that we are, you know, that we're descending back into some Trumpian nightmare. If you would discuss this with me and my listeners. No, I think you're right. Um, We got to see normalcy on both sides. I mean, the striking thing to me is might be, you know, to observe the cheerleading on the left, but also like the you know, on the right, the inability to even see any good in anything that Joe Biden is doing. I mean, the number of scandals that Fox News wants to attribute to this man who has, you know, been the most effective 100-day president that we've seen since FDR is astonishing. So I think that we have a real problem with press in the United States. You know, it is in the business interest of the press to render us partisan and polarized. They make more money the more they can rally us to hate the other side. The politics of hate is extraordinarily profitable for them. I don't know what we do when their profit depends on destroying our democracy because we don't have any way to stop them under the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't allow us to regulate the press. So they're going to continue to try to gin us up to hate the other side. And we're going, you know, many of these people are going to be ginned up to hate the other side. And again, the best evidence of that is 
the 70% of Republicans who believe this election was stolen. I mean, that is the most astonishing fact, I think, of the last five years of astonishing facts. The idea that, you know, Fox News and Breitbart were able to convince 70% of Republicans that this election was some massive fraud when there's no evidence for it at all, literally no evidence of coordinated fraud at all, is the most scary reality here. It's, it just shows that we just have become untethered from reality. And, you know, people on the right might be able to point to things on the left that are equivalent. I don't think there is anything as equivalent to that. But the point is, until we fix the machine that is producing this fundamental irrationality, craziness, I don't know what we're going to do to get back to normalcy. It's not just a switch. It's a whole system that's producing this insanity. Larry, are you really trying to tell me that you don't think that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him, that there weren't boxes of ballots <laughs> sitting under desks that actually on the box said Donald Trump votes shred, you know, shred at the local shredded store? I, you really don't believe that that happened? I, I've been brainwashed by the radical left, no doubt. Oh yes, no, I God. don't think that happened, Michael. <laughs> yeah, wow. Wow. Well, tr Trump's not going to invite you to Mar-a-Lago for a Mar-a-Lago <laughs> burger. You can rest assured on that one, right? Now, you know, one of the things that you brought up is what do we do in order to change the press from acting in the manner sometimes that they do, which is really is, and you're at, you're 100% right about it, they the more salacious, the crazier the things that are being said and done, the more money they make, whether it's on digital with the clicks or the more magazines and newspapers that are sold. I am a perfect example of it. You know, when they started playing with the Steele dossier, my phone exploded beyond the very first day. I didn't even know the Steele dossier existed until I think it was Rosalind Haldeman and um, Tom Hamburger called me. I was in Florida watching my son pitching against the best baseball high school baseball team in the country img elite and boy they rocked him on that day too he saw me walking around screaming on the phone he sidetracked him anyway <laughs> you know one of the things that happens is they they want they want the clicks they want the sales they want the notoriety and they'll just print things that they know aren't true now the new york post as it relates to me, is the absolute worst. Rupert Murdoch should understand, you know, just how damaging it is. Because if, in fact, that the shit that they pulled here is the same as what they would do in the UK, they would be sued. And the defamation laws in the UK are substantially better for plaintiffs than they are here in the United States. You know, if you lose a defamation case in the UK, just so my listeners know, the party that loses pays the legal fees, right? And the courts in the UK are very prone and they're sensitive to slander and to, you know, um, and to defamation. Uh, so maybe we have to look to see how we can come in between the rules that we have now, the protection of the First Amendment rights versus the protection of an individual's rights to have truth be told about him. Because like for me, I've never been to Prague. I never paid money, not a penny, to any Russian compromise. I don't own a dacha in the Soviet Union in, um, in Russia that's in Sochi, right next door to Vladimir Putin. I just don't own it, right? And on top of that, my, my family are not involved in real estate in Moscow. To the, in fact, I've never been to Moscow, and neither has anybody in my entire family. Right. So yeah. 
how this became. My phone was never in the Czech Republic. I never took a kayak from the Hudson River all the way to Germany and <laughs> snuck in. I just never did it. But these are the stories, whether it's McClatchy or the New York Post or, you know, so many. Even the New York Times had a story about me being in Prague. It's a lie. And so what happens? They just keep running with it. And as the individual who's the recipient, you become exhausted emotionally, physically, financially. You're just devastated from it. And that was what ultimately brought me to prison. Right? It was the high publicity and, of course, the SDNY here, the sovereign district of New York that acts in a way different than any other office of its kind throughout the country. It's, for them, it's all about conviction. They don't give a crap about anything else. They need to keep their 98% conviction rate so that they can go on to like the Guggenheim partners, the, you know, the Davis Polks, the Lowenstein Sandlers. With their million-dollar contracts, they're willing to screw up your life. And yet, what do we have here in this country as well? We have prosecutorial immunity. They know right. what they're doing is illegal. They're withholding Brady information, right? And then what, what they, they lie on the documents, and they're like, well, listen, I need my prosecution. I don't, I don't really I need my conviction. I don't care. And whatever happens to you happens to you, as long as I get my seven-figure deal when I go to one of these white glove firms. And that's, that's pathetic, actually. You know, the best example, I think, of that uh, was after the 2008 financial crisis. You know, after the savings and loan crisis and, uh, you know, the decade before, there were a thousand prosecutions where bank executives went to jail. But after the saving, after the 2008 crisis, there are basically no prosecutions Zero. of any of these bankers. And why is it? It's because those prosecutors know that they eventually want to switch out and go work for those law firms. And what they know is the easiest way for them, them to make sure that they can pass out to those law firms is to keep those law firms happy. So how do you keep them happy? You walk in and you offer them a deal. You don't have to admit any guilt. You just have to pay some puny fine and then admit that, you know, basically you're going to not do this thing again. And they do that again and again and again so that the people responsible who actually do the crime pay no time. The economy is completely trashed and they get to go and transfer into their new lucrative jobs. I mean, so the corruption, I agree with you, is everywhere here. And, 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 and you know, I think I, I, I was in the middle of a I, I sued The New York Times, um, you know, people really tore, you know, tore into me for doing this. But New York Times, when, you know, around this whole Jeffrey Epstein thing in MIT, I'd written something. It was the Times headline on it, right? It was the yeah, headline. Yeah yeah. 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 And the New York Times wrote a story that they published in the print edition. And then they had an online edition story. The print edition headline was perfectly boring and perfectly accurate. And it was not defamatory. It said, basically, Harvard professors thinks there's a complicated story here, blah, blah, blah. The online edition headline basically made me out as somebody who was defending Jeffrey Epstein, which, of course, I've never done. I think the guy's, you know, obviously. But the point is, that headline was clickbait. And they knew that if they crafted it to make it seem like a Harvard professor is defending Jeffrey Epstein, millions of people would click on it. And, of course, they would be outraged. And, of course, everybody was trashing everything I did because of this. And I sued them. And I said, this is a clickbait defamation, this total defamation, because you know it's not true. But you do it just so you get the clicks. And after five months and, you know, spending whatever to make sure the lawyers would make it credible that I was suing them, they finally backed down and said, well, 
we'll change the headline to be what the headline in the print edition is. But when I did this, everybody said, oh, my God, you're challenging this fundamental principle of New York Times versus Sullivan. And, you know, I think people need to step back and realize that those principles of immunity, just like qualified immunity for the police, we've got to constantly ask, do they continue to make sense? You know, and so qualified immunity for the police means that the police get away with, you know, murder, literally, because they can say, well, I'm sorry, it's immune. I'm immune under the law. And the same thing with, you know, I think the press. We need to have a system where people have an incentive to be responsible. And that doesn't mean that you allow any crazy to sue anybody for a billion dollars. I think that what you pointed out about the British system is very important. If you've got no claim, you're not going to bring a suit because you're going to end up paying the legal fees of the other side. Um, but at least people ought to be worried or at least aware that what they do uh, has got to at least have a plausible basis in truth. Um, and if they don't, then they then they shouldn't be saying it. And, but unfortunately, know, but Larry, unfortunately, your win was not really a win. Right. Because you spent money, you spent your time in order to get them to change the headline. And the problem is once that headline hits the Internet, after after one second of hitting the internet, even if they change it, it doesn't make a difference. It's there forever. And that's the thing that shows up. And with now, with the way people are following you or, you know, or others, the second that it comes out there, they're already onto it. So five months after, it may as well be 50 years thereafter. I agree. It's I irrelevant. Agree. So while you won the victory, Right, which is getting them to change what never should have been there in the first place. The sad part is that you really lost because they got what they wanted anyway. It's just irresponsible behavior, and it's all done in order to drive financial gain. And yet they get to keep that financial gain at your expense, and it's wrong, and it needs to be changed. And that's why I say there has to be some medium in between the process that we have here in America and the way that it is in the UK. We have to start like what happened to Gawker, right? Now, what they did, of course, it was atrocious. And I'm referring to the Hulk Hogan scandal where they punched a hole in the wall. They filmed him, um, you know, engaging in a sexual relations act. And then, you know, that's a whole nother animal, right? But there has to be some sort of way that you can hold these entities responsible because they don't understand or maybe they do they just don't care the damage that it does to you as a harvard professor now now in in people's minds believing even for a second that you believe in jeffrey epstein and that you're defending jeffrey epstein somebody who's indefensible yeah. No, you don't have to tell me. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, and again, it's about, the, you know, there's a relationship to the Internet. I, I think we have to realize the Internet is different today from what it was 20 years ago. And what makes it different is advertising. Everything on the Internet is driven by advertising. And what that means is there's an incentive to constantly forth get people to engage. And you see that distortion everywhere. You know, like you go read an article, which it, it literally should have taken 150 words to say what the article says, but it goes on for 5,000 words because they want you to page through all of the advertising to get to the end of it. And, and the point is this, this incentive distorts the objective of trying to tell the truth. Like, you know, if I can get close to something that's more salacious and brings more people in, 
I'll get more ads and we'll have more revenue. And of course, a place like the New York Times, you know, I don't think the Post thinks this, but the New York Times thinks they're doing God's work. I mean, the Post just thinks they're just trying to create trouble. But uh, the Times thinks, wow, we're out here like standing up to precedents and doing the investigative journalism we need to do. And I love what the Times does in a whole bunch of areas. But the point yeah, is, too. when they're not, when they're not able to hold themselves to a standard that says we're going to be accurate, as accurate on the online version as in the offline version, then I think we've, we're down the road to, to a real corruption. Totally agree. As the occurrence of identity scams continue to increase, more people are looking for ways to protect themselves from cyber criminals. In fact, 60% of Americans believe it is likely that identity theft will cause them a financial loss in the next year. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals around the world keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the personal information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. Now, Larry, Washington seems to finally be having a truly progressive moment as the Biden administration is turning many of the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's campaign issues into transformative legislation. Now, one such example is Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax to pay for infrastructure. Now, despite GOP opposition, it is proving in polling to be overwhelmingly popular. How do you think we arrived at this moment? Because like a recent guest of mine argued that it's because Trump was so transparent in his own greed and desire to reward big business and the wealthy that the cause of progressivism and the fight against true economic inequality were advanced by decades. I mean, he thinks he should get the Nobel Peace Prize for that as well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the idea is that they're once considered socialist are really kind of now becoming mainstream within the party. If you can, discuss this. See, but that's the point, Michael. These are not socialist. These are not extreme ideas at all. You know, these are really moderate, reasonable positions that, you know, we ought to have a reasonable tax rate in America. The tax rate in America has been slashed dramatically under the repeated lie that the lower you bring the taxes, the more income you will bring to the treasury. That lie has been proven to be a lie over and over and over again. Yet they bring it out. They trot it out. The Republicans trot it out every single time they're in power. They slash taxes in a big way, leave a huge deficit for the Democrats to come in and clean up. And the point is now our tax rate today in this, in this economy is significantly lower on both the corporate and the individual level than it was during the height of our growth in, you know, in the 70s and the 60s, even in the 50s. And the point is, it shouldn't be radical. It shouldn't be progressive. You don't, have to, you don't have to be a socialist to think we ought to have a sensible tax system to make sure that we don't 
burden our children with endless, endless debt. I mean, this guy who came to office, you know, when you watched him in the campaign, you must have heard him a hundred times talk about the terrible thing about the debt, right? He is totally crippled generations with this debt caused by a almost $2 trillion tax cut to the richest in America and corporations in America, um, which, you know, was not justified by anything other than just selling out to the base of uh, money that he needed to continue to fuel what he was trying to do. And so I, I agree with you. It's it's important that ideas like Elizabeth Warren's are, are are actually having some traction. But I think that those ideas shouldn't be labeled as like far progressive ideas. Let's call them reasonable ideas. The government should not spend more than it's taking in. And if it needs to be spending money on things like COVID relief, which obviously it needs to be spending money on, needs to be bringing in more money to make sure that my children and my children's children and my children's children's children aren't paying the consequences of this absurd debt that's being produced because we are just so fiscally irresponsible. Uh, That's not radical leftism. That seems to me very conservative in its ideas. Well, I agree with you. I had a guest on a couple of um, podcasts ago who... And I fundamentally disagree. He's, um, I, in my opinion, he's a little bit far left of Bernie Sanders when it comes to, he doesn't believe that the debt is even a real thing. But putting, you know, putting all that aside, I, today I was, as an example, I took a walk through the park. I'm allowed out for two hours a day on my home confinement. And I took a walk with a buddy of mine. And he told me he's leaving. I said, you leave in where? He says, I'm going to Florida. I said, what are you going to Florida for? Because every, all our friends are there. I said, oh, that's, that's great. You know, you're going to keep the apartment? He goes, no, nah, I'm going to put it up for sale. I'm moving to Florida altogether. I cannot pay between city, state, and federal taxes 60 61%. He goes, I just can't do it. Fundamentally, he goes, I cannot do it. Now, I get that. I really do. I mean, to give away 60 61% of your income is very high. New York's tax rate is enormously high, and I don't understand it. And I think that Governor Cuomo has done an absolute piss poor job in terms of dealing with the fiscal um, health of this of this state. Uh, I think de Blasio has done even a worse job than even Cuomo in terms of the fiscal health of the city. And so we, those that have stayed, right, are bearing the brunt when it comes to whether it's, you know, real estate taxes, star taxes, you know, everything has gone up. And everything that you do in the city, from the second you wake up to the coffee that you buy, you're just being taxed, taxed, taxed. Whereas the lifestyle is beautiful in other states, and you don't have the same issue of being overtaxed. You get to keep more of your hard-earned money. And today, I don't have to tell you, it's harder to earn a dollar unless you're one of these mega billionaires Right. It's harder to earn a dollar. So people want to keep their money. By the the way, all the billionaires in New York that I know have all now applied or have already taken, you know, residence in the state of Florida. And I think that it's going to be a massive problem for all of us here in New York, because I see New York going bankrupt under the way these two idiots are running the state. Maybe they should bring me in and maybe they should bring me in. I'll show them how to be fiscally responsible. Well, I think that's a great point. And I think, uh, you know, we have to recognize government in general is radically inefficient. And why is that? I think it's because we've not invested enough to make it more efficient. 
you know, you look at somebody like Amazon and you think, wow, that's such an incredibly efficient company. It can do like un- inconceivable things. Like 15 years ago, if you told me that Amazon could overnight deliver anything that I want for free, you know, at least on the margin, I, I would have thought it was impossible, but it's astonishing what they've been able to do. But that's because they've invested billions and billions to make their systems more efficient. We don't invest in making government efficient. Like anytime anybody wants to talk about making government more efficient, it's like, oh my gosh, don't begin to spend our money to do something like that. I think what we need to do is to commit to the idea that we ought to have the leanest, meanest, most efficient government to achieve the minimal necessary to make sure we have flourishing security in America, right? I'm not, I don't think we should have huge government, but I also don't think we ought to have a government that's wasting money because it, it can't afford to have the most effective technology or the most effective infrastructure to do its job. And I think it needs to collect taxes in a fair way. I mean, the most striking thing about the last six months of research about taxes is we could be collecting a huge amount of money, like maybe a half a trillion dollars more if we simply enforced the rules that we have against those friends of yours who are moving to Florida. I mean, because what the IRS has basically done is it's, is it's, um, it's given up. Like it knows that when it's facing somebody like a Donald Trump, who's going to fight like hell all the way down, um, the IRS has said, it's not worth it to us. Like we're not going to waste our legal resources, like fighting something like this. So we're going to take all these people who we know have the most vicious lawyers in the room and we're going to let them get away with whatever shit they're going to get away with. Well, they and didn't the rest let me get us, away with anything. I can assure well, you of that. Right, you, I didn't think you had a billion dollars behind you, Michael. Maybe no, you did. I, I don't know. But... I don't have anything behind me anymore. Whatever I had, I you know, is uncle Sam has taken that and then some, but I wanted to ask you, Larry, as we move forward, um, The Biden administration has also signaled their willingness to take on big tech by appointing Tim Wu, that um, a leading tech critic, to the National Economic Council. Now, first off, for my listeners, tell them who is Tim Wu and what is his critical stance against big tech? And finally, what confrontational steps do you think will be taken to rein in big tech and bring about some real some real reform here. So Tim is brilliant. I know him very well because he was my student. He was one of the first students in my law of cyberspace class. And then I, you know, helped him think through what he would be working on. And, and, and he wrote um, after we had a long conversation, his first big point about network neutrality. And he's been an incredibly prolific and powerful thinker about how to make sure that principles of competition survive in the digital age. So the point is, first, he's a technologist. Like, you know, he could sit down and manage technology just as anybody, as well as anybody else. But number two, he has very solid principles of competition law behind him. So what Tim Wu wants to do, at least from his writing, I haven't talked to him since he was appointed, but since from from his writing, is he just wants to apply the principles of antitrust law to the tech sector. What's astonishing is to recognize the last time we had a major antitrust case in the tech sector was the Microsoft case 20 years ago. So we've had 20 years of basically hands off, like Silicon Valley can't do any wrong. We're going to let them do whatever the hell they want and and control and build markets however they want. And that's what they've done. And what Tim says, and I think rightly, is that even the simplest principles of antitrust, if applied consistently against these 
uh, tech giants would at least staunch their extraordinary growth in power. And the power we need to worry about is not just in the marketplace. It's also in the political marketplace. I mean, the most dangerous thing about these powerful companies is that they capture government and they and they allow government, they control government to make sure government never taxes them or or regulates them or does anything to them that they would do to anybody else in the economy. So I think Tim is one of the bright spots in the list of appointments that Biden has made, because I know he has integrity and genius. And those two things together are rare anywhere, but especially rare in government. Yeah, well, it's no different, really, than the whole concept of too big to fail. I mean, people, people, when they're engaging in this exact conversation about tech and the tech giants, what happens? What if government decided to go fight with Google? And what if Google just turned around one day and said, listen, we're a private company. We're going to do whatever we want. So you know what? For 48 hours, we're shutting down. Right, right. You call your local representatives and tell them that your Google account is shut down, which includes your Gmail. It includes your ability to Google crap. It includes the functioning of your cell phone. And watch how people start to raise their pitchforks, right, to their, you know, to their representatives and saying, how dare you? You're interfering with my life. They know that they've captured basically their market. They are untouchable in their minds. This is such such an important, it's such an important point, Michael. I mean, they, Google, Facebook, Amazon, you try to take Amazon on and Amazon says, okay, your one click buying is gone. They would immediately have a million people marching on Washington saying, stop screwing around with these, because they've become so big and powerful. When Microsoft was taken on, Microsoft tried to rally it's Microsoft users to complain to the government. But, you know, everybody didn't have an email account. Everybody wasn't wired into Microsoft's brain. They just had an operating system on their computer, which was not even connected to the internet necessarily. But now, you know, Mike, Mark Zuckerberg um, is wired into the brain of a billion people, right? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg can change the algorithm and radically affect how you get your news or what news you get or what information gets fed to people. And if they want to, they're a private company, just like the New York Times can decide what's on the front page. They can decide what their algorithm serves. They can decide to start serving anti-Biden information to everybody. And as they do that, they say to Biden, look, back off or we're going to double down on our anti-Biden or anti-Democratic party. Uh, And you tell me who's going to have the courage to stand up to that. So this is one of the things I've been saying, including to Tim Wu, I'm not sure the government has the power anymore to stand up to these people. Because if they resist the way some of the cable companies in California have resisted net neutrality uh, regulations, if they resist, I'm not sure on what side the people land, especially in a world where 70% of of the Republicans think this election was stolen. It's easy to spin them into craziness. Yeah, I think, though, we've been very fortunate that taking the Mark Zuckerbergs out of the equation, because there's a lot of new information, negative information coming about him uh, and how he plays government. But you get guys like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos. Um, I don't hear the same sort of angry rhetoric that we're hearing about Zuckerberg and others. Uh, Elon Musk is another one. You know, he may be a little bit, you know, wacky and so on, but the guy is a genius. I mean, I remember reading an article a couple of years back. It stuck with me. What if Elon Musk was Dr. Evil? 
And I thought it was brilliant, the article, because <laughs> right. he's so freaking genius. I mean, this is the guy who turned around and said to NASA, what are you doing? Why are you exploding the jet propulsion systems in the, right, in the, in the atmosphere, in yeah. the stratosphere, instead of bringing them back down and reusing them? That's hundreds of millions of dollars. And what did he do? He set up a chip like a drone to bring it right back. Now the guy wants to build Jurassic Park, but using genetic reconstruction you know algorithms in order to recreate dinosaurs i mean the guy is the guy is truly an amazing he's wacky but he's definitely amazing now larry as we're winding down the hour i have just one one last question for you um you recently had bill crystal on your podcast um another way i'm curious if you discussed how the republican party repairs itself and moves on from its current extremist moment what happens to traditional conservatives like Bill Crystal in the era of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the I can't stand him, the Ron Johnsons of the world? I don't think the Bill Crystals have a clear path forward. You know, I think that there was a hope, especially around January 6th, that at least the party would split. And if the party split, then maybe that would discipline people back into some more sane position. But obviously the party didn't split. You see people like Mitch McConnell completely flip over and and uh, and and no longer do we have the resistance to the authoritarian Donald Trump tradition. Um, I don't know if the Republicans, you know, these kind of never Trumpers or even not the never Trumpers, the principled conservative Republicans, the Republican Party. You know, when I was a kid, I was a Republican. I was the youngest member of the 1980 delegation from Pennsylvania that voted for Ronald Reagan. Right. So I, I don't have I don't hate Republicans. And, you know, my parents were Republicans until their last day. But the point is, those Republicans, those principled Republicans, people who had ideas, they no longer matter. And, um, you know, I don't think anybody has a clear plan for how we're going to get back to a party tied to the truth and the truth that's aiming for something other than just making white guys like us feel good about ourselves. You know, the point is, it's a party focused on basically our demographic, you know, over 50 I'm assuming you're over 50. I, I don't know. I actually know, Michael. You could I okay, am. over 50, <laughs> barely. Um, over 50 white male, anxious with the world, angry because they think all of our uh, you know advantages have been given to minorities or to women. I mean, that's the demographic, even if it's not our us in particular. And so long as that's the focus of the Republican Party, it's hopeless. We don't have a two-party system anymore. But I don't think Bill Crystal, I haven't heard anybody yet who has a good plan for how we get back to that. April in New York City can be a dreary month. Winter may be over, but the true warmth of spring has not yet arrived. And then there's the rain, and worst of all, taxes are due. Frankly, I'd rather take the whole month off. So if, like me, you're in need of a positive experience to balance it all out, consider protecting your loved ones by getting life insurance with Policy Genius. Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers in one place and save 50% or more on life insurance. Once you find your best option, the Policy Genius team will set up your new policy for you and answer any questions you have along the way. And you can feel good knowing your family has financial protection. Getting started is real easy. First, head to PolicyGenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Since their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance company, there's zero hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius will take care of everything. 
That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. Now, the best part of it all, all the benefits of Policy Genius, the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice are totally free for you to use. Policy Genius can promise that you won't leave their website feeling like a fool. And you can save 50% or more by comparing life insurance quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. So go to policygenius.com to get started. That's Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. You see, I've, I've never been, uh, surprisingly enough, I've never been a Republican. I've been a Democrat, huh. you know, all the way, wow. um, 1987, 88. I worked actually for Congressman Joe Moakley in, um, when I was in college at American University. I don't see that same, nor did I ever look for that white privilege and so on. Did I know it existed? Sure, I knew it existed, right? Did I try to take advantage of it? I don't think so, though I don't think that we even had to try. I am actually excited to see what's happening in our country. I'm excited to see the diversity that's now coming into Congress, whether it's male, female, whether it's black, white, brown, whether it's, you know, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. I personally don't care. I truly don't. What I care about is that they're competent and that the that their goal is the same as mine, and that's to improve America one day at a time. Now, people today, they want to see, you know, Rome being built in a day. That's just not going to happen, folks. It just doesn't happen, right? It takes time. Why? Because you have the Mitch McConnells of the world. You have the racist Donald Trumps of the world. And you have all of these people that Donald Trump, this Trumpism, this cult of individuals that are just like him. They're just not bold enough to turn around and to say, like the Klan, that, hey, White is right. White power, right? right? They're just not willing to do it. So they hide behind the tree, right? Sticking their head out in order to pretend that, hey, I'm really with, I'm with everybody. But they're really not. And that's the problem. And that's why I see people like Bill Crystal's being pushed aside. And I find that scary because I believe everybody's voice should be heard. I think everybody has a right to say whatever they want. Now, of course, we all hope and pray that what they're saying is right and fair and equitable for everybody. I mean, why should men be paid more than women? Most of the women that I know are more competent than the men, right? So why should they not be paid at least the same? Why should anybody receive more than the next person when that person is more competent than they are to do the job. I just don't see it. And hopefully with all of you know the new things that are coming out in this Biden administration and all of the promises that he made, and I'm going to hold him to these promises, no different than how I'll turn around and say that Trump was just the shittiest president that we've ever had, right? Um, my hope is that Biden and his administration of competent people will be able to do the things that they promised and they'll be able to help to advance America to be what we really are. That's the melting pot of America. And with that, yeah, Larry- and yeah. I am so grateful. I I completely agree with you. And I think that the, I'm incredibly excited with the diversity and the, and the energy and the potential and the geniuses, you know, we've got Elon Musk's we've, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is still a genius, even if he's maybe an evil genius, but the point is we have enormous potential. If we can just get evil out of the way. And it was a big step that we achieved by not reelecting that man as president. Um, 
And now we have a lot of work to get our political system focused on making America better, because right now um, it's not. And if we don't get H.R. 1 passed, I'm terrified about what 2023 looks like, because the Republicans could come back in full force, even though they don't represent a majority of America. That's the end of democracy when that happens. Well, Larry, I want to thank you again for your time, for your insight, for your wisdom. And I want to wish you, uh, you know, uh, a great day. And let's just hope, let's hope and keep our fingers crossed for HR1, right? Thank you, Michael. Thanks you for having be me. be well. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. When I said early in the episode that I feel like I need a shower after talking about Matt Gates, I wasn't joking. When you report on and think about the misdeeds and sleaze of other people day in and day out, it has an effect on you. For some, it makes them outwardly cynical about the entire political system that it's all bought and paid for, what's the difference anyway? For others, they simply turn away disgusted and stop paying attention. Finally, there are those people like Lawrence Lessig who see the rot and dysfunction and instead have dedicated themselves to ridding the nation of this corruption by getting involved and creating new pathways to fight the dysfunction at the heart of our political experiment. I must admit that sometimes it's quite hard to get up and fight after being so abused by our government and the justice system. Each day that I wake up is kind of Groundhog's Day, reminder of my own legal predicament as I stare at my ankle monitor and watch it beep. Yet despite it all, I maintain a real and fervent desire to reform what I think is broken and continue to inform all of you on what needs to be done so this country can rid itself of the political opportunists and carpetbaggers who come of age in the era of Donald Trump. It's part of my penance, but it's also becoming my guiding mission. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick. And executive producer, Jared Gustad. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. Hey, movie lovers. Who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. (laughs) 